0: Injustice with the Montana Innocence Project. This podcast tells the real stories behind wrongful and unjust convictions and illuminates the complex issues responsible for making our criminal justice system unjust. Today, we are joined by Missoula Municipal Court Judge Jake Coolidge and criminal defense attorney and MTIP board member, Carrie Jabadlo for a discussion about how the cash bail system impacts innocent people and what the reform process looks like. Let's begin unpacking. Today's podcast guests see the criminal legal system in Montana up close every day. They sat down with us to share their reflections on the injustices baked into the cash bail system, Why Innocence Advocates Should Care, and some recent reforms taking place in Missoula County. Take a listen. Could you both introduce yourselves and your roles in the criminal justice system in Montana?
1: Sure. My name is Jake Coolidge. I am a municipal court judge in Missoula.
2: And my name is Carrie Jabadlo, and I am a criminal defense attorney, and I've practiced on both the trial level and the appellate level.
0: Thank you. Um, Judge Coolidge, for somebody who knows nothing about the bail system, what is it and how does it typically work?
1: So, the bail system is essentially when someone's charged with a crime, they can either be charged with the crime and be out of custody during the pendency of the case or in custody during the pendency of the case. So, the bail system is essentially the determination of how and if a person is going to be in trial during the pendency of their case or out of trial. So, if a or in custody, yeah. Uh, and so that determination is made at their initial appearance, usually. And so it's the amount of money set that is supposed to ensure that they make all of their court hearings and don't commit new offenses during the pendency of the case. So a number of things go into that decision-making, but essentially the judge sets bail at a specific amount – And that amount can be posted or not posted. If it's posted, a person is out of custody during the pendency of a trial, or if that person is unable to post that amount, then they spend the pretrial time in custody. So that's essentially the bail system.
0: And what are some flaws of this system generally?
1: I would say the most apparent flaw of that system is it creates a bifurcated justice system based upon socioeconomic status. Essentially people who have means to post bail are able to post higher amounts of bail and people who do not have means to post bail cannot post bail even if it's in relatively nominal amounts, including one, two, three hundred dollars. So it creates a system where people have more latitude and liberty Pre conviction, when they're presumed innocent, if they can afford to post bail, whereas people from lower socioeconomic tiers can't afford to post that bail, so they'll disproportionately spend greater amount of times in custody pre trial than their higher socioeconomic system counterparts, even though they are both equally presumed innocent. And of course, that compounds itself because it disproportionately impacts communities of colors, c- communities of color, and other kind of disadvantaged communities. So, it creates issues there obviously, in terms of equity and fairness. But I think as <clears throat> Carrie is about to talk to, it also creates impacts because it creates differential outcomes in their cases as they pend, because pretrial custody has negative impacts on case outcomes.
0: Yeah, Carrie, can you speak to how the bail system <coughs> can be particularly particularly harmful to someone who is innocent and wants to maintain their innocence?
2: Sure, so... The first and most obvious concern about bail is that if someone can't post bail and they've been charged with a crime and they are sitting in jail um, and they are offered any type of agreement to plead to something and they would be released from custody, that is a very coercive uh, situation to be in. So it creates this juxtaposition where a person May be forced to decide do I want to be released from custody and admit to something that I potentially didn 't do or the state can 't prove, um, or do I want to stay incarcerated and uh, and fight for to prove my innocence so and there 's lots of reasons why, for example, bail may be set at a very high level, say someone 's charged with you know a high level felony offense, but the state can 't prove that. And so they may be offered a proof to a lesser offense, right? And and that may be an element of, of coercion, right? Their bail may be set exceptionally high and they know that they can get out on, on reduced charges, something along that. And there there's an important distinction there among maybe misdemeanor and felony cases because oftentimes in a misdemeanor case, um, you know, you're not seeing long, uh, custodial sentences, meaning someone's not going to be sentenced to jail. But if they don't show up for court, so bail is set, uh, it may be that they are more enticed to plead uh, right away because it's a misdemeanor level offense. They know their sentence won't include incarceration, and they know that they can be be released. It's probably less common uh, in the felony realm, but that's, it's, it still exists and there's really no way of tracking it. And so that's, that's also very difficult. The other aspect is that, you know, if someone has bail, and can't post bail during the pendency of their case, it becomes more difficult to have conversations with their attorney. It becomes more difficult to investigate their case, to collect evidence on their own behalf, to talk to the investigators in that case, because they're constrained by visiting hours and what we can get into the jail uh, when visiting a client, all of those things. So it's a lot easier to collaborate if they're in the community. Um. If they post, there's also problems that come along with that, right? They've oftentimes, bail is supposed to be set to some extent commiserate with what you are able to to afford. Uh, but oftentimes clients are having to pool resources to be able to post bail. And so when they come out of jail um, and are should be focusing on, you know, proving their innocence and maintaining their innocence, um, but instead they 've they 've maybe exhausted their financial resources or had to sell their car or take out a second mortgage on their house. Point being that there 's a a sh- can be a shift in focus as to what their priorities are because bail 's been imposed and then there 's other kind of you know secondary effects of Bails imposed and a person who hasn't committed an offense is now becoming institutionalized, right? They're sitting in custody for extended periods of time. Uh, They're being destabilized. They're losing their job. They're not seeing their kids. They're not taking their kids to school. All of those kind of side effects that happen uh, once bail has been imposed. Judge Coolidge,
0: um, when did the Missoula Municipal Court decide to make some reforms to the bail system, and how did it go about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, so we, I mean, we're working within the confines of the same bail system, but what we are trying to do is reduce to the greatest extent possible pretrial incarceration on misdemeanors. And so that means we try and do everything within our power to not rely on pretrial incarceration. So we try not to set bail in any way, especially a large percentage of the defendants in Missoula Municipal Court are indigent, meaning that they're, you know, of low socioeconomic tiers, generally about 125% of the poverty line or lower. So setting cash bail in any way, shape, or form results in pretrial incarceration. So again, we've tried to develop a pretrial support system that decreases failures to appear. As I said, bail is set to try and make sure people make their court dates and don't have new offenses during the pendency of the case. And so we've tried to implement systems that assist people who are out pretrial, who are not incarcerated pretrial, to avoid those outcomes so we're not faced with having to determine whether or not to maintain cash bail. Because if you can avoid the things that trigger cash bail, then you don't have to address the harms of pretrial incarceration. So we've developed our own program through the county called PASS, and it basically uses – research-validated ways of decreasing failure to appear rates, things that seem like kind of common sense. We send people text message reminders about their court dates, and we have them check in with support specialists who help them get voluntary service referrals. On its face, it's not directly linked to the cash bail system, but the reason it's important to us is because it avoids pretrial incarceration and avoids us utilizing the cash bail system to ensure that people make their court dates. And what we found is that they're very effective. Like our, our failures to appear rates are better than national best practice standards. Aim for people missing only 10% of their court dates, our numbers are about 6.5%. So we're largely circumventing the bail system just by listening to research. Um, So that's one thing that we're doing in municipal court, and it's helped tremendously. I think before we took the bench, there was on average between 13 and 15 people on any given night that were being held only on municipal court holds pursuant to the cash bail system. That number now hovers around zero. Uh, its high points are usually three. So what we're seeing is a dramatic reduction in that process. And I know when I practiced in this court, one thing that I saw to Carrie's point is you would have a client who's in jail on a pretrial hold, and they would be argued to hold them because they don't make their court dates. But if they pled that day, they would get out. And I, it's kind of an interesting thing because when you talk about scope of the innocence problem at that level... Gary and I were talking about it earlier today. I don't even know how many people, if you look at the entire national justice system, how many misdemeanants pled out on stuff just to avoid the cash bail system. So it is really important, I think, for limited jurisdiction courts with misdemeanors to focus on reducing these kind of things, which is what we're trying to do.
0: You spoke to some of the results you're seeing already. Are there any other results you want to discuss?
1: Uh... (laughs) Kind of another thing that we're finding is people uh, want to be on our pretrial support system because they find it helpful to avoid missing court. You know, the other thing about the cash bail system is if a lot of times it's triggered by failing to appear. And, uh, you know, a lot of the research shows that people don't choose to fail to appear. They fail to appear because of access to court or those kind of things. So it's kind of interesting because the bond system and cash bail system The people who experience those hurdles to make it to court appearances are the same people who can't afford to post cash bond. So it has a way of kind of compounding poverty and that impact on people. So I would say that, you know, the other improvements we're seeing is that uh, I think it kind of decompresses those inequities on lower socioeconomic status.
0: And what is something people would be surprised to know about the bail system and the process of reforming it?
1: Um, well, I mean, one thing, one thing that's huge is, is within the bail system, there's also a division between cash and surety bonds, which I don't think most people probably have any idea about. The entire concept around bail, which is worth noting, this has been completely debunked academically, is that if people have basically collateral invested in the system, that they will then increase their likelihood of engagement with the court system. Again, all of the studies suggest that that's not actually true. There's no correlation between people posting a bond. But that's all predicated on the assumption that you post a cash bond, and if you continue to engage in the court process, that you'll get that bond back. What we have is a slightly skewed system that even deviates from that basic premise, and that is that we utilize, when I say we, I just kind of mean globally, especially in Montana, not globally, but nationally and in Montana. A surety bond system where we have bondsmen who, if you give a bondsman, generally speaking, about 10% of your posted bond, they will post the bond for you. The thing is I say generally because all that it really opens it up to is a contract between the person who's incarcerated and the bondsman. They may agree to garnish your wages for the next 10 years and post your bond. They may agree to take less if you're willing to put up additional property collateral. So it's kind of an exploitative circumstance right off the bat. Uh, It's also worth noting that we are – the Philippines I think is the only other country in the world that uses a bondsman system and you know they execute drug dealers. So it's not exactly a great company to keep in terms of criminal justice space. But so then the bondsman can post this bond and if you haven't shown up for court, then the court authorizes – and Montana law in fact authorizes the bondsman to go get you. And so it's quite literally like the Wild West – with bounty hunters, and they're not really a regulated industry historically. There's a couple who have been charged for homicide in Butte about this. So even within this, is it's op- the cash bond system itself has opened the door for predatory private industry to inject itself, and it in fact has. And I think the standard practice, for instance, in district court is to set bond so high that you're assuming that everyone's going to be use a bondsman. So they may set $50,000 knowing that what they're actually going to do is give a bondsman 5000 So it's created this really predatorial cottage industry. Uh, I mean, there's like TV shows that follow these people around quite literally. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, So that's one thing I would say that most people really don't realize. I also think that generally most people don't realize that the jail's population is like 80% pretrial. So when we think about people who are in jail, I think a lot of people think of people who have been convicted of offenses. But because of the cash bail system, the reality is, is the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in county jails still have not ever even been convicted of a crime.
0: Carrie, um, why should innocence advocates or just people who engage with um like follow our work and care about innocence issues care about reforming the cash bail system?
2: Well, I think it goes back to to what Judge Coolidge was just saying i mean it it's a predatory system, the bail system in general, but it goes back to these predatory practices disproportionately impacting people that are already at a disadvantage in the criminal legal system. So when you're talking about people that want to fight for their innocence um, and people that have had bond, post or bond imposed upon them, talking about you know, people need to be able to afford to post the bail, right? And if they can't afford to post the bail, they don't have a way to uh, collaborate with their attorneys, and there's a disproportional impact upon indigent clients for that, re- you know, in the bail system, right? So we need to be concerned about how those two things correlate, that already we have a criminal legal system that uh, marginalizes certain communities, and then uh, the risk for those people being convicted of crimes while innocent also also goes up. You know, it goes back to, like, equity and justice, right? So we, we want what we care about what bail stands for is this principle that we want people to show up to court but as a preliminary matter that doesn't the empirical evidence doesn't actually establish that it works so already we the purpose for which we say we're using bail has been debunked like like Jake already discussed Um, But then it comes with disadvantages that have already been proven as well, right? We know that bail disproportionately impacts lower socioeconomic communities because they just don't have the money to post bond, right? Uh, And if they are able to collaborate their resources or pool their resources and hand them over to a bondsman, then they're further destabilized than other people who have additional resources, right? So it sends them into a whirlwind when trying to fight for the most important thing in their life, right? Their freedom. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that, that Jake already discussed is why we should care about reform is because it is the driver of mass incarceration, uh, that it's, that it's driving not only mass incarceration post-conviction, but, but obviously it's driving it pre-conviction, uh, and, um, And there's two elements of that, right? There's the when what most people maybe don't know about is that if a client can be released uh, prior to uh, their trial or prior to their conviction, and sometimes when you're fighting for your innocence, that process is not doesn't end at trial, right? As we as the Innocence Project knows very well, that can take years and years post post conviction through the appellate or post conviction relief process, but what what, how that's related to bail is that folks that are released on bail and do well, right? So they go into the community while their sentence is pending. Maybe they go to treatment or they just stay out of trouble. They oftentimes receive much lighter sentences or non-custodial sentences, right? They don't go to prison like other people do. Um, but people who stay in jail prior to a conviction are oftentimes or are at least more likely to be sentenced to a custodial sentence. So when we're talking about how bail reform uh, and innocence and how it's tied together, when someone's oftentimes taking years to be able to prove their innocence um, and fight a wrongful conviction, the difference of being released pre-trial may mean whether or not they're fighting that from incarceration or... Or not from incarceration, and obviously that's that's huge on an individual level. Um, and lastly, I mean, I, I feel like I already said this, but just to reiterate, I think when we're talking about uh, a person who has been wrongfully accused of something, the system—they're already fighting an uphill battle, right? and the system works against these people you know most people that are charged are convicted um and and to to be wrongfully convicted of something you're you're facing an uphill battle the prosecution has the the police working on their behalf the system is kind of f- focused on on making sure that they're convicted of something um So all of these additional hurdles to be able to collaborate with their attorney, to be able to, you know, be of sound mind, to be with their their loved ones at night through this process, all of that stuff matters to the strength of their case. Um, And that's huge. That's the difference between winning and losing sometimes. Even just the logistics of going to trial with somebody who's incarcerated make the day of trial more difficult, right? What you're talking about having to transfer somebody over from the jail, get them in clothes they've probably never tried on before, get them looking suitable to come, even though they've just had a horrible night in their cell with their with their roommate or not been able to eat. You know, we're talking about people's livelihoods or, or their, their life, their liberty. All of these details matter. And so uh, bail is really the first step that begins to work against people that have been wrongfully accused of a crime. I would say. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and this, that makes me. It's interesting. I thought of a couple things while Carrie was talking, uh, thinking about how this impacts people who are innocent. The, the the fascinating thing about the pretrial space is categorically that's everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, by as far as like a presumption of innocence. So we are talking about like an innocent population. From by legal terms, um, and so it really does. I completely agree. Impact them in all those ways, and it's interesting because we have other ways to do it, right? We don't need to rely on the challenge with bail is it's an arbitrary judicial decision. That's also the other thing that's floating around is it's when bail arguments are made. There's very limited information from the judge. So to Carrie's point, this is a huge uh, kind of like folk or entry point to this entire process where impact where outcomes are impacted immediately. And how it's often decided is by a decision maker, a judge, arbitrarily setting a monetary amount on that. It just doesn't work. And it's, we have their risk assessment instruments. I mean, there are other more sophisticated ways that we can figure out if people can be released safely pretrial. And the system kind of as a whole doesn't use them and uses kind of archaic methods to figure it out that has such immediate and obvious impacts based solely on someone's socioeconomic status.
2: Yeah, and to that point, I think it's important to mention that when bond is set, you know, it's often a day or two days after someone has been charged with the crime. So it can happen before an attorney has been appointed. It's oftentimes, it's almost always before an attorney has really had any time to review the evidence in the case. And oftentimes, you know, you've had very brief conversations with your client Um and you're very limited at what you can say. You're not wanting to go into the facts of the allegations, nor do you have the ability to or the uh, or the resources to. And so bail is often, what bail actually looks like is the state saying all of these horrendous things occurred. Um, and for that reason, your client should not be allowed out of custody. And you having very limited, as a defense perspective, very limited ability to refute those allegations at that point. Um, you know, and bail is supposed to, the seriousness of the allegations is supposed to be one, one factor in setting bail, but it's not supposed to be the only factor. But in practice, uh, it's, the arguments around bail are oftentimes hyperbolic allegations against the client.
0: Speaking to an audience of people who care about wrongful and unjust convictions, what else do you want them to know about this topic and how they can get involved in advocating for a better bail system um, in their communities?
1: Um, I mean, I think it it plays a major role in case outcomes. I mean, I think everyone agrees pre-trial incarceration and the bail system play a major role in cash in, in outcomes. And it dovetails into pretrial incarceration. So I think in terms of people who are concerned about people getting wrongfully convicted or even just uh, unjust outcomes or the drivers of mass incarceration, I think they need to get engaged in local elections and and figure things out like that to know where criminal justice actors stand on issues like pretrial incarceration, uh, bond, pretrial practices. I would say even to become aware of what their communities are doing. I would say a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on in their pretrial space in their communities, including pretrial incarceration, including bond. Uh, I I know that there have also, I think it's worth noting, there have been some movements to uh, abolish cash bail systems. And I think that sometimes that can also have unintended consequences. That's what happens at the federal level. I believe California and Illinois have done the same thing, Uh, but that you know, can be problematic as well in this, for the same reasons and that the same decision makers just make the unilateral determination, the binary determination of whether or not someone is going to be released pretrial. Uh, and so I think that in a lot of these places where cash bail is going away, folks are likely to see similar pretrial incarceration rates regardless of the mechanism by which people are held. So that said, I... I think the cash bail system has its own issues its standalone issues but i think it also begs the question of how our justice system should conduct itself pre-trial as a whole more so than just the cash bail system on its own
2: yeah and i think just as a general member of the community one of the most important things we can do is to just withhold judgment um once people are charged with offenses. So I think oftentimes, whether it's conscious or not, a driving factor for courts uh, in setting bond is a fear that, you know, for the community safety that a, that a client or a defendant could go out and cause harm to someone. Uh, but also, what does it look like if in fact they release somebody into the community that has been alleged to have uh, gotten in a fight with a cop or beat up, you know, somebody. And they don't want – they're very concerned about the stigma that that could create in releasing people in the community that are deemed um, potentially unsafe – and so, as community members, we need to withhold judgment until and recognize and really understand the presumption of innocence, um, and that there are just because people are released back into the community while their case is pending, does not mean that they're not that they are. Not being monitored, uh, oftentimes, almost always, uh, clients who are released into the community on bond uh, or without bond are being closely monitored, uh, which is a whole other topic about whether or not that's appropriate. But it's a reality right now, um, and so I think, um, I think as a community, if we can understand some of that better, maybe we can relieve some of that external pressure um, that courts may feel to, to, quote unquote, keep the community safe.
0: is a montana innocence project podcast the artwork was created by rob truax and the music was composed by Corey fay to learn more about the montana innocence project visit our website mtinnocenceproject.org or follow us on social media at big sky innocence to submit a case visit our website and click on the request legal assistance tab Thank you for unpacking injustice with the Montana Innocence Project.